0: All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to the book of Galatians. We're continuing our overview series in the Bible. We have come a long way with the ways yet to go, overviewing a different book of the Bible each night that we're gathered together. Tonight we land in the book of Galatians. It depends on who you read, what commentary you pick up or what introduction to the New Testament that you pick up, Uh, but most New Testament scholars have the book of Galatians as Paul's very first letter. Actually, don't think it's Paul's very first letter, but that's a discussion for another time. What you can see in the book of Galatians is an expression of the basic, the foundational doctrines that the Apostle Paul believed and taught within the churches that he planted and sought to be an encouragement to over the course of his ministry. Some have suggested that what you have in Galatians Galatians is an early, more basic, elementary setting forth of Paul's doctrine, whereas later in the book of Romans you have a more thorough explanation of his beliefs regarding the ins and outs or the doctrinal underpinnings of the message of the gospel. In any event, the book of Galatians is a critically important book in understanding the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Not only does Paul deal with a great deal of personal information here, he even shares his testimony and defends his conversion experience and tells of the affirmation of that conversion experience by the early church around Jerusalem and even the apostles. There's great insight into the early years of the Apostle Paul's ministry. But there's also a setting forth of this critically important doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Again and again in the book of Galatians, Paul is saying, we are not justified by our works, we are justified by faith. Here's what that means. We talked about this in the book of Romans, but we'll deal with it again here because repetition is our friend when it comes to cementing doctrinal uh, concepts in our heart and in our mind. And it's critically important for practical reasons too, which we'll see in in our study. Justification is the biblical term used to describe God's declaring us. It's a judicial term. It is as though God is the judge on the throne, and indeed God is the judge on the throne. And he has declared us Not just not guilty, by faith in Jesus, he has declared us innocent. You understand from the American judicial system, there's a great deal of difference between not guilty and innocent. We have not only been found not guilty, we have more than that been declared by the judge, by God himself, as innocent from all crimes. Our whole experience, our slate has been Wiped clean, and there's even more than that as you delve further into the gospel. We have been accredited with all of the righteousness of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Which is to say, when we believe on Jesus, there is a judicial act in heaven that declares us as righteous and blameless and holy. Back in our study of Romans, we talked about the subtleties of this doctrine and how this doctrine can be monkeyed with in some ways. We compared our understanding of justification by faith to a Catholic understanding of justification by faith. Back in the early years of my ministry, there was a lot of effort at drawing together Catholics and Protestants. And the contention was that we can be on the same page on the basis of the doctrine of justification by faith. Now here's where the subtleties get us into trouble. We believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, whereas the Catholic position is justification by faith, and that's the end of the statement they would say justification by faith and the affirmation of the church or and works that you might be a part of within the context of the church. But what we're saying, we believe in justification by faith alone, is an altogether different statement. We are affirming in that statement that our only hope of being right before God, our only hope of heaven, our only means of reconciliation to God, is by faith in Jesus Christ. No work added to that, no work subtracted from that. It's Christ's work and Christ's work alone that justifies us before God. He is our only hope in salvation. Now Paul is teaching this, clearly teaching this in every church that he establishes. This is near and dear to the heart of the gospel. But someone has come behind him in Galatia and have begun to teach a different doctrine. Can you guess what group might have wanted to add works to the gospel in the first century? It was those Jews who struggled so to come away from the legal requirements or obligations of the old covenant and under the free grace that we now receive in Jesus Christ. They're referred to in biblical studies as the Judaizers, a reference to their former way of life, now syncretized with their new way of life in Jesus. And one of the chief component parts of the teaching of the Judaizers was that in order for Gentiles to be converted to Christianity, Christianity, they needed to first be converted to Judaism which meant that for men, they needed to undergo the ritual rite of circumcision. You can see how this could be problematic in a Gentile context, not just for theological reasons, but but for practical reasons. And what Paul is saying to them is, your efforts at straining at these Old Testament gnats are futile, worthless, and in fact, in conflict with the gospel. Because it's never been our obedience to the law that wins the favor of God for us. Our salvation is not bound up in our obedience to the law. Our salvation is bound up in Christ's obedience to the law. We are justified by faith in him and his obedience, his righteousness is accredited to us when we believe on him. This is the chief issue in the book of Galatians and a major issue in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So you have there before you an outline and key themes one through ten. We'll not cover all ten in the time that we have together, but I want us to move through the first few uh, especially. Chapter one and verse number six, Paul gets immediately to this issue of false gospel And the ease with which many in Galatia have been persuaded by this false gospel. He warns them against that gospel beginning in verse 6. He says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to change the good news about the Messiah. But even if we, Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we've preached to you, a curse be on him. As we've said before, I now say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, a curse be on him. Paul's discouraged plainly in the book of Galatians at, again, how quickly they have gone away from the truth. And if you've been about gospel ministry for any amount of time, perhaps you've experienced the same frustrations and discouragement. There are times when you think someone really has it figured out, and within a relatively short period of time, you realize they really don't have it figured out. Paul warns them, if anyone brings you a gospel that is contrary to what you have received, He is a cursed preacher. We can say, from our perspective, looking back now at a codified New Testament, a canonized New Testament, if anyone brings to you a gospel that is out of sync with or inconsistent with the gospel as it is communicated in the New Testament, they are a cursed preacher. Sometimes I think, people think I'm a little overbearing and kind of nitpicky when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Like I can really strain at gnats at times, right? We, we've had now, we when I started Trey, our discipleship pastor wanted to have these Point Academy meetings where we talked about biblical interpretation. I think we're 12 hours worth of Point Academy meetings into this process, and we have... From my point of view, barely scratch the surface when it comes to rightly dividing the word of God. But this is deadly serious business, right? Do you think that those false teachers who came to Galatia believed that they were teaching a false gospel when they came there? Absolutely not. No one teaches a false gospel that they believe in their hearts to be a false gospel. They they're sincere. There's some basis either real or imagined for their saying what they say. My point here is that our understanding of the gospel must necessarily be shaped by the New Testament teaching concerning the gospel. And the only point of access we have to that gospel is our ability to read and rightly divide the Word of God as preserved for us in the Scripture. Even false presentations of the gospel today are rooted in sincere sincere false gospel ministries that are just based largely on faulty interpretations of what the New Testament clearly teaches. He warns them, and you need to be warned as well, that every smiling mug that comes at you, having co-opted the language of the Bible, is not a friendly soul. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. And you need to be privy to this. The way you guard yourself against this is not to chase after every counterfeit form of the gospel that comes along seeking to understand all of its intricacies and details. You will be chasing your tail for the rest of your life if that's your approach. The the way you guard yourself against the counterfeit is by knowing the true, the genuine, the real thing inside and out. You're training bank employees as to how to, to search out, to sniff out counterfeit money. You don't send them to a seminar on what counterfeits look like. You give them a, a lecture, a class. You, you train them, you teach them as to what the real thing looks like so that anything that comes their way that does not look like the real thing is quickly sifted out and set aside. You need to be aware that there are many false gospels masquerading as the gospel of Jesus Christ. I continue to be frustrated doing ministry in the Mid-South in ways that I never really had to deal with until moving here. Because virtually any vice that I would turn a body away from, anything that I warn you against, any sin that might prevent someone from being a part of the body of our church, Those very people, you, if you stand in opposition to the Bible's conviction or or biblical convictions on any number of issues, you can find and beside you in your misinterpretation or misrepresentation of the gospel within a relatively short distance of our church. That's a reality for us, right? Someone mentioned the other day, I think it was our Sunday morning prayer group, about a church of Satan in Memphis. I don't know if there's a church of Satan in Memphis or not, but i got to tell you, i got a whole lot less problem with a church of Satan that's at least being honest about what they are than I do a church with a false gospel hiding behind the cross of Jesus Christ. And there are a lot more false gospels hiding behind the cross of Jesus Christ than there are churches of Satan being honest about what they are at their core. You need to be aware that there are many false gospels and false gospel preachers, and they're aiming at your heart. And I would add, they're aiming at the hearts of your children as well. Paul begins this self-defense or defense of the gospel in verse number 11 of our passage, Galatians 1, 11. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me is not based on human thought. I didn't make it up. It's not Paul's gospel, it's not Peter's gospel, it's not my gospel, and it's not yours. It is a gospel revealed explicitly in verse 12 by revelation from Jesus Christ. This is the standard by which we judge all gospels. Is this the gospel revealed in Christ? In verse 13, he begins to talk about his own testimony, his experience, and the power of the gospel in changing his life. He says, For you've heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my birth set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. The point of what Paul is saying is this. When Jesus revealed himself to me on the road to Damascus, I did not reach for a commentary. I did not run to Peter or the apostles. I did not seek affirmation from anyone else. Jesus had revealed himself to me. Rather, I just withdrew in order to reckon with this new realization that God had afforded me on the road to Damascus. In other words, this is not a man-made gospel. These are not the thoughts of my imagination. The gospel I preach is the direct product of the revelation of Jesus Christ. For us, it's a different experience, right? Because God is not ordinarily striking us down and granting visions in the day. It is that he has revealed himself through his word. The 27 books of the New Testament serve as the full revelation of Christ's character, Christ himself, the full revelation of the Father. He talks about an experience in verses 18 and following where he did eventually go to Jerusalem and did find some degree of affirmation from Peter And the other disciples. He says in verse 21 Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches in Christ. They simply kept hearing, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. There's evidence in the power of the gospel, the gospel as believed by the Apostle Paul, in the radical way that it changed his life personally. He was a persecutor of the church. But now, by the power of the gospel, he was a preacher of the message of Jesus. In chapter 2, he begins to talk about his uh, going up to Jerusalem and his experiences there, again, affirmed by those disciples. Over in verse number 6, Paul says, Now from those recognized as important, what they really were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to me. In other words, I didn't get something from them. Paul's experience was not coming to faith and then going away to be indoctrinated by some group. He was indoctrinated by the gospel. In verse 7, the Bible says, On the contrary, they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John recognized his pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and to Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. He's doing two things at one time. On the one hand, he wants to make sure that they understand that the gospel is not a human invention. Not an invention in his imagination, not an invention in the hands of the apostles. It is a direct revelation of Jesus. So he distances himself, on the one hand, from the influence of the Jerusalem church. On the other hand, given the fact that he is combating the presence of jewish influence, false teachers in Galatia, he helps them to see that while they have not unduly influenced him... They have affirmed his ministry among the Gentiles. The same Peter who was assigned by Christ ministry among the circumcised has affirmed the apostleship and ministry of the Apostle Paul now doing ministry among the Gentile or the uncircumcised. When you get to verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul begins to get to what I think are some of the practical implications of justification. I was having a conversation yesterday with uh, our one of our pastoral ministry interns and talking to him about doctrinal preaching. When I say doctrinal preaching in some contexts, people go, uh. And they think about that as like a lecture and typically a very dry lecture. But doctrine should dance in the life of the Christian. The breakdown when it comes to doctrinal preaching is that most doctrinal preachers never get to the practical implications of the doctrine itself. And you really have to get there in order for people to understand or appreciate the difference that it makes in our life. Paul does this beautifully in all of his letters in the New Testament. They're, they're all two-part books. If you've read the New Testament, you're familiar with the basic structure of Paul's books. In the first part you get theology or doctrine. In the back half you get practical exhortation. Here's what I've observed. People drift toward the back end of Paul's books and they fail to recognize the inseparable connection that exists between the the theological framework established in the beginning of the book and the practical exhortations found in the latter part of the book. Like that long theological discourse in Ephesians 1, how he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is the theological basis for everything that Paul says in chapter 4 related to unity and the diversity of gifts enjoyed within the body of Christ. If you don't understand this unique place of chosenness, you'll struggle to have the kind of unity and harmony within the church, given its diversity, that God intends for us to have. The same is true of the doctrine of justification if you don't have your arms around the doctrine of justification, if you are convinced that you're being justified with God is somehow the product of your work, even your ability to to believe somehow, if you think that somehow you're contributing to your salvation, you're always going to wrestle to have the degree of humility that God has called us to have. Like, God didn't save you because one day you matured or you were wiser or smarter than those around you, and so you put it all together and figured it all out. It is grace and grace alone. Our justification is by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let me show you what I mean here. In verse 11, the Bible says, when Cephas, that's the Greek form of the name Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, "...because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel... I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you're a Jew, uh, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you, if you as a Jew rather, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that no one is justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Peter is essentially exhibiting prejudice or racism. He was eating with the Gentiles until his pals from Jerusalem showed up, and then he withdrew from them. And his hypocrisy had the powerful effect of influencing others, even Barnabas. Barnabas is the son of encouragement. If there is a positively characterized figure in the New Testament, it's Barnabas. And Barnabas is influenced by Peter's prejudice against the Gentiles when his friends from Jerusalem of the circumcision party show up. And and what Paul does is to say to him not, don't be a racist, although he wants him to not be a racist. He says to him, your problem is a gospel problem. Your problem is that you have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the gospel. These things don't, these works, they don't contribute to our salvation. No one has been, can be, or will be saved by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. He'll say later in the book of Galatians that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. He reduces this thing to a gospel issue. Unless you feel that that's far too elementary for some people that you deal with, or maybe far too elementary for you. Like if if, if you think somehow you advance beyond a place where, where the basics of the gospel are the answers to your issues, I would remind you that Paul is talking to Peter, the number one apostle. I don't care how many seminary degrees you got or how long you've been studying the Bible, how long you've been a part of the church, or how advanced you feel you are in your understanding of the Bible, none of us are rising to the level of Peter. And Paul says the problem right now today in your life, Peter, with your prejudice, with your racism, with your hypocrisy, is a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Rather than walking Peter through a list of moral imperatives, Rather than taking Peter to a thou shalt not, he takes Peter right to the only source of hope in overcoming this sin that so easily entangles us, he takes him to the gospel. And he says, Peter, remember this doctrine. Remember how it is that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Remember that this is our only hope, which functions not only to humble us, that we're no better than anyone else. He's chosen the weak things of the world to bind the strong, the foolish things to confound the wise. It humbles us in that way. But it also reminds us of the petty nature, the filthy, worthless nature of any work of righteousness that we might bring before the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. When you've got sin issues, this is the point. The place to go is is not so much to the thou shalt nots, although they prove to function as guardians and guides for us in life, they are essential. But the place to go for remedy is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our only hope, the only source of forgiveness we find. Now I want to make sure we see this next thing, the, the, this, this doctrine of justification and how it is defended specifically in chapter number three. Go to verse one. You foolish Galatians, who's hypnotized you? Before whose eyes Jesus was vividly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Not only does salvation come by faith, but the abiding presence of God's Spirit comes by faith. The question is, in all of your laboring at obedience, is that how you receive the Spirit? Or was it by hearing the gospel and believing on Jesus? In verse 6, Paul says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now, the Scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time, to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who have faith. There's two things happening here. One, he cites this passage from Genesis, which is always his proof text for proving that it's always been this way. It has always been the case that God accredits righteousness to us on the basis of faith and not works. But at the same time, he's dealing with this issue of racism in Galatia, and he's pointing out that the sons of Abraham are those who have believed before ethnic Israel. Did you catch that in our passage? Can I kick an ant heel here just quickly that I'm not willing to resolve in the time that we have together tonight? Who, who is Israel? Israel are those who have believed on Jesus. Now, One of my pet peeves when it comes to the way we interpret the Bible is the misappropriation of countless biblical texts that relate to the nation of Israel and their place in the plan of God for the salvation of his people. You and I are, by faith in Jesus, the true Israel. We are the sons and daughters of Abraham. So that on some level... This is the ant heel. All of those promises of God for the nation of Israel that we like to call on as American evangelicals in the Old Testament, those are true of the bride of Christ, of you and me as sons and daughters of Abraham, having believed on Jesus. This whole deal, this whole issue of justification by faith, continues to be addressed throughout chapter 3. Down in verse 27 of chapter 3, The apostle says, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ like a garment, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. We have, by faith in Jesus, become the recipients of God's promise to Abraham. Grafted in as Gentile people, we have found a place by adoption in the family of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and stewards until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. But when the time came to completion... God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The point that he's making is that Those described here as slaves are those who are living under the old covenant law. They're just given certain directives, but they don't enjoy the privileges of sonship. But under the new covenant, under the new covenant, in spite of the fact that we don't look like Jesus, we don't act like Jesus, we don't come from where Jesus came from, We don't share an ancestral lineage with Jesus. We have different backgrounds and even different ethnicities. God has by grace afforded us a part of his inheritance and adopted us as sons so that the spirit abiding in us might well cry, Abba, Father. It really is a remarkable thing that God has done for us through his son Jesus. This is spelled out in greater detail in the remainder of chapter 4, and then we have this illustration of how this all functions in chapter 4, verses 21 and following. There's an interesting illustration there. Sarah and Hagar are the source for illustration. Sarah and Hagar, Sarah being the wife of Abraham, Hagar being uh, the, the, the maid servant of Abraham, Sarah, who was given to Abraham to produce a child that they hoped would be the promised child. They tried to short-circuit the promise of God, and that didn't work out well for them then, and it's still not working out so well for the people of God today. But they become the example. Hagar is the slave girl, and although she bears a son, he does not enjoy the privileges of the promised son. Isaac, however, does. And then he corresponds these to Mount Sinai and an earthly Jerusalem and a new Jerusalem that is to come where our citizenship exists. We have received as sons of the promises all of the benefits of the new covenant and a new city, a Jerusalem above, free, a Jerusalem above in the presence of Jesus. Here's the last thing I want us to see. In chapter five, Paul gets to dealing with the practical problems that arise from a false gospel. If the gospel is the road we seek to travel, there are dangers in either ditch. On the left of the gospel road, there is the ditch we'll call libertinism or liberalism. And then on the right side of the gospel road, there's the ditch we'll call legalism. In the left ditch, we're encouraged that we do whatever we want, what whenever we want, however we want, and God will just shower us with grace in spite of our stubbornness. On the right side, in the legalist ditch, we're coached to believe that somehow, some way, the things that we do are contributing to our salvation, and usually along with life in that ditch goes the idea that because we do certain things, we're better than everyone else. You can see this show up in all kinds of pseudo-Christian experiences. Back several years ago now, it was one of the first times I ever went to the Southern Baptist Convention. It was in Phoenix that year. There There were two distinct groups protesting the Southern Baptist Convention that year. There was an LGBT rights group protesting the convention for our positions on biblical marriage and family they were sort of over on this side with all of their signs and rainbow flags and those sorts of things and then there was the Westboro Baptist Church group who was there because our position on biblical marriage and family wasn't as hateful and vindictive as theirs is so you got both of these groups out here And in the moment, it was a clear picture of what Paul is dealing with in in the region of Galatia. You've got the liberals who say, we can just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And then you've got the legalists who say, y'all all going to go to hell because we're better than all of you. So you've got the Pharisees, and then you've got this liberal party that are living licentious lifestyle. Paul deals with that in chapter 5. He says in verse 1, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. So there's freedom in Christ. There is freedom in Christ. There are liberties that we enjoy that apart from Christ we could not enjoy. Our life looks substantially different from saints who lived under the old covenant. Would you agree? There are certain freedoms that we enjoy. And even where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You have not, cannot, nor will you commit a sin that is too big to be covered by the grace of God. There's freedom in that knowledge, right? You ought to have and enjoy a certain degree of Christian freedom. On the other hand, Paul addresses in verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ, and you have fallen from grace. Both of these ditches represent a a misunderstanding of the gospel. We're going to look at a passage on Sunday morning, a distinctly New Testament Christian passage, that says that we should pursue holiness because it's only those who do who will see the face of God. That's a true gospel principle. At the same time, there is freedom in Christ. If you you think that holiness is a non-issue when it comes to the gospel, you have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the gospel. On the other hand, if you think that your holiness is winning you favor with God, you have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the gospel. How are we to find this place of delicate balance? I'm glad you asked because Paul provides the answer. In verse 16, here's here's the answer. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. Those are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So the Spirit helps us to be obedient. That's how you can be obedient. Walk in the Spirit, and there's freedom in that, to follow the direction and the leadership of the Spirit. Understand, in our setting, the Spirit is functioning, operating, to bring to our memory, to to employ what we know of God's Word in our life. Walk in the Spirit is the answer to God's call in our life to holiness. But if you walk in the Spirit, you're not under the law, Paul says. In other words, you're acknowledging as you walk in the Spirit that you are entirely dependent on the presence and the power of the Spirit that anything of any value whatsoever would be done in your life. We're doing what Paul does in Second Corinthians. And we looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago now. We are recognizing that our sufficiency or our competency is not our own. It is Christ abiding by his spirit in us. The answer to liberalism and legalism is to walk in the spirit of Jesus, plain and simple. closes out the book with some practical exhortations and encouragements. The law of the harvest is spelled out for us in Galatians chapter 6. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. This is true in all of life, especially true in sharing the message of the gospel and winning souls. And then Paul encourages them that we'll reap if we won't quit. There are various other exhortations to be found there for you. If if you want a, a relatively brief summary and defense of the gospel, you needn't look further than the book of Galatians. I hope that you'll come away with some vocabulary to talk about what God has done for us and his Son, specifically this whole idea of justification by faith. I know that sometimes people aren't really fired up about 12-cent words when it comes to theological conversation, and I get that, but I don't know how else you say that we are justified by faith apart from saying we are justified by faith and having a good understanding of what it means to say just that that because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, there will come a day when what is true will be declared in finality, when we stand before the judgment seat of God and the divine gavel is slammed and the declaration of God over our life by faith in Jesus is blameless and holy and righteous, not because of the deeds that we have done, but because of the finished work of his only son in the fulfillment of the law and his substitutionary death on the cross. Aren't you glad for that? Go tell someone about it this week. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments together. I pray again that you would hide your word away in our heart that we might not sin against you. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.